Hey, Trey. Hey, Nate. How's it going? Going good. How about yourself, man? Pretty good, man. Thanks for asking. We want to welcome everyone out to the third episode of the Craft Notes podcast. The Craft Notes podcast is brought to you by Motif Research. And this week in uh, the third field guide that we put out, we discussed the process of actually prioritizing the phenomenon that you've you know, started to be able to canonize inside of your organization, which we talked about last week. So we want to talk a little bit more today about some of the, the really important nuances between prioritization frameworks that exist and some of the frameworks or the processes that most product practitioners are used to when they're actually going about and prioritizing a feature or a new product initiative, you know, all the story cards that will come with that. So we just want to talk about how is this different than, you know, what a product manager or other product practitioner is doing inside of Jira or Trello or, you know, whatever application they're using to be able to track the, the delivery of their work. And what are those important nuances and how can you go about really thinking about this in a systemic way and what types of dialogue should be occurring and, and really who should be involved in this process as you're going about and prioritizing this phenomenon. One of the things that uh, we, we want to touch on first is, is really why, why would you even go about prioritizing the phenomena that you are observing inside of your organization? What, what's the value in ensuring that just the most important things that are being observed you know, are actually being observed? If you have the resources, if you have all the team members um, that are able to be able to maybe get a, a wider coverage, what, what's the value in making sure that these are highly prioritized and, and having a little bit more systemic way to do this? So let's start there. And Trey, tell me a little bit about your thoughts this week on, on why it's important to be able to really start to prioritize these research initiatives around the phenomena that are, that are actually surfacing. When you start to create a culture where your team and the entire company are starting to recognize and observe phenomenon and you're starting to create this funnel of phenomenon and starting to see phenomenon come up over and over again. And like we mentioned last week, starting to be able to canonize that there's just going to be so much that you can go chase after that to really do a thorough and complete job of finding out what's going on behind a certain phenomenon to identify and surface that causation, you really need to be able to take your resources and put them behind the phenomena that you believe is going to be the most impactful or the most insightful. So I think one of the risks and tendencies that you can run into is thinking that you can just find out about everything. So if you are seeing 10 or 15 different phenomenon among your user base, you may just think, well, it's easy for us to get in touch with our users. Let's just go ask them about all these different things and create studies about all this. And you can go that approach, but it's easy to get that diluted and to not really get the results you're looking for and the insights you're trying to uncover. Just because you don't have the resources focused on the phenomenon that are going to be the most important. So that's why I think it's really important to go through this process of having this dialogue internally to actually identify what phenomenon you believe are going to be the most important. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we put a lot of 
attention at the very beginning of this episode, ironically, around what the difference is between features and phenomenon. But I actually think the similarity between prioritizing your phenomenon and and a feature is in is is very similar. You know, some of the same reasons here is you you can't really just throw all the resources in the world at every single feature that you want to go build, right? There's a there's an order of importance and impact and and hierarchy that exists within these efforts because there's an investment involved. Your company or your organization is is spending, you know, real money on you to be able to actually go out and do the qualitative research that is needed to be able to understand the causation behind these phenomena. So it's not cheap. We, we think that ultimately it's cheaper than building iterative hypotheses like we've talked about before, but it's important that you're, you're looking at this spectrum and funnel of phenomena, like Trace said, and actually understanding what are you, what are you going to do next? Why is this the very most important thing for your organization to understand right now? And I think just from a, a pure operational cost standpoint, it's responsible, you know, practicing to be able to, to think through things in this way. I also think that there's just an, you know, a huge value prop aspect of this, that if you, if you think through this in a good way, you're going to consistently be doing what is most valuable and triggering the new efforts that are going to be most valuable for your customers in the long run. Absolutely. Time is money and it's still going <laughs> to yeah. cost you something. And I think one thing we want to hit on here as well is even though the prioritization may feel similar to when you're prioritizing those story cards and those features that you're wanting to implement, the justification and the way that you prioritize, like what decides one phenomenon is prioritized above another is very different from building features out. If you've been in product or if you've been in operations and you're justifying the cost to be able to invest time and resources of technical individuals to be able to build something new, I think the most common approach in any for-profit business is that you look at what will it cost us to be able to build said feature or new process and what is the expected return we can find on that. And we see that in two common ways. One, we look at if you're coming from the product standpoint, hopefully it's, you know, we're going to be able to increase how much we charge by this amount, or we'll be able to attract this customer base, which will open up our reach by this amount, which we can reasonably expect this many new customers. And you're kind of diving into those numbers. And of course, where the ratio is favorable in terms of what you invest and what you gain, you're going to put your resources there first. And likewise, on the second side of that, you could look at How's it going to save us in terms of if you're trying to save costs from an operational standpoint? And that idea and that framework just doesn't work with phenomenon. There's just a lot of other things to take into account. And you just really don't have that data. You really don't have those kind of numbers or that even assumption. Like that's the whole reason why you're doing the research in the first place is because you don't have that data. And so there opens up a lot more dialogue around what your objectives are where your company's positioned and where you're trying to go and also what is going to impede you in that process, what impact it could have, how you could respond to it quickly. These are all things that is mentioned in the field guide, but it's very different where we feel like that prioritizing features can be very quantitative while 
prioritizing phenomenon will feel more qualitative and more of like an art and a little less like a science. Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, probably people that come from heavy consulting backgrounds, people that are just going to be a little bit more on the business management and operations side that are going to be usually pretty uncomfortable with this type of, even this entire stage of what's happening in this process. And I think that's largely due to the fact that most future prioritization can usually be associated and justified by some sort of business case that's usually built, right? There's usually some market sizing that's associated with it. And I I think it's a little bit more about revenue realization. If we were to build this, how much revenue could we actually capture within a given certain amount of time? And when you're talking about, well, what are we going to go out and learn? You're really having to think about, well, what, what doors internally, externally would this open up? It, it's almost more about this potential energy <laughs> inside the organization that hasn't been tapped into yet that you're, you're trying to look and understand. So each feature in and of itself has probably some valid market value that's pretty explicit and easy to see by most people in the organization, which is why you're able to, in a localized way, almost score how valuable a particular feature is and compare it to other features and and start to have a pretty clear order of, of which things you can do first and why. Whereas on this with Phenomenon, it, it's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to understand the relationships. It, it's better to think about it like a network. It's It's better to think about this as each phenomenon, each strategic initiative, each feature that's being built, each product team, each department is a node in this larger network. And as you look at a phenomenon, you're trying to understand what is the influence that this has on all of these other nodes? What, what could it enable? What, what things could actually start to happen because we understand this better? What's currently being impeded by it, right? And we'll, we'll go into more of these variables and discuss in the field guide later, but I think it's important to understand that nuance there that yes, this is different. Yes, there's no clear delineation to, you know, real revenue that's going to be recognized and put into the coffers of the organization quite yet, but that's not fair uh, (laughs) to be able to expect that at this stage. You're really trying to understand what is the most important thing for our organization to understand that might enable revenue, that might enable customer loyalty, that might enable cutting edge value propositions that put you ahead of the market instead of, you know, putting you in this laggard state. So there's a lot of different things that can come about by understanding this well, but it's crucial to understand the difference here. Like why, why would you even want there to be this difference, this pre-stage to ever building something? And why would you prioritize this process of trying to go out and learn things? I agree. Like, and there's a great visual that Nate's put together on the field guide that really shows the numeric versus the graph mentality. And you really do have to just think about how a specific phenomenon, understanding the causality behind it would affect the organization as a whole. Like you said, from a product standpoint, from a strategic positioning standpoint and a market standpoint. And those are really the only things that bring real value in determining which phenomenon should be prioritized above another using your fixed resources to dive into that causality. So, yeah, I, I think that's great. I, I think the, the key thing to understand is that there's a, a pretty 
sophisticated way to be able to think through the different variables that would affect each node or phenomenon that you know fits in this graph like you said trey and we we've outlined four here in the field guide that we feel are probably pretty high on the list of things that you should be thinking about when you're trying to prioritize any sort of phenomenon the first of which is cost so again we're not really talking about the actual operational costs you're not you're not trying to figure out you know what the opex uh, is going to be for going out and trying to learn about a particular phenomenon you're what you're trying to do and understand is is there any lost value or implicated costs like we talked about in the field guide that's occurring in the business because of what's being observed so let's say right now you have a brand new feature that you just launched and you notice that adoption is pretty low it's also a pretty strong potential driver for conversion if you're if you're able to be able to increase the adoption uh, you know awareness of this feature so immediately it's pretty easy to see that there's some associated costs that's not always going to be quite that simple i think there's a there's a really great blog post actually that just came out this i think two weeks ago by jared spool where he's talking about a way to be able to quantify the ability and the activities that surround user experience. And I really loved one of the examples that he uses in this blog post, and we'll include this in the notes, in the, the episode notes hereafter. But one of the examples that he gives is if there's any sort of confusion or if you have any sort of friction inside of the product, you could actually look at some of the, the costs associated with supporting that feature. So how many, how many customer support calls are coming in because of this feature? Interesting. You know, how much time do they spend trying to be able to help people understand how to be able to actually use the product? How many deals are lost because of this? How much time does the implementation team take to be able to actually train people up on these very difficult to understand features? So it's not always going to be something that directly has, you know, revenue attribution to it. Those are always great and, you know, wonderful times for a product practitioner to be able to uh, revel in the fact that they have this really clear line to business value, but it's not always going to be that simple. So I think there, there are definitely other ways to be able to look at what value is either potentially going to be created or is currently being lost because of what's being observed with a, with a particular phenomenon. That's really interesting. And as you were talking through that, I've thought of a few things we've talked about in the past is, especially if you are a company that's priding yourself on building a product that is enjoyable and delightful to use, kind of understanding what are those things that cause that friction and almost dispel or remove that feeling of this being a delightful product anymore. And we felt those, like we've gone through the painful process of trying to get support from a company that does not list a support email or even an option to be able to chat with someone through their support. Like they have got help docs to the moon but they don't have a way for you to be able to contact them. Things like that, that even though you can't necessarily attribute a specific dollar amount, just like the feelings that it would deteriorate from your goal and your mission to be able to create like a delightful experience. Those are all yeah. costs that go into it as well. And that's part of the dialogue that should be happening here as well. Oh yeah. Think, think about Uber or I mean, for heaven's sakes, any marketplace right now, you know, has probably a similar issue here, but let's take Uber for a moment. Obviously been in the news for 
quite a few reasons in the last couple of years. We're not going to dive into 90% of them, <laughs> but one of the, one of the ones that came out, you know, I think almost, it's been almost two years was a lot of the criticism around how much drivers are being compensated. So what is, what is their fair, the, the whole argument around tipping, which has now been enabled and is a feature that has been used quite heavily. If you've seen any of the, the usage reports around that, but the point being is that you couldn't really myopically quantify the effect of a driver being paid two, three percent less, up to you know probably even ten or fifteen percent less. But over a longer period of time, even if the driver is still driving with you, there's a sense of loyalty to your brand that has most definitely degraded. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but out of all the probably almost two dozen times I've traveled in the last couple of years. I've seen more cars with a Lyft and an Uber sticker on them than I've ever seen before. Yes. And if you're telling me that that has nothing to do with brand loyalty, you're kidding yourself. So there's an immeasurable cost now. It probably wasn't measurable two years ago immediately when you know brand loyalty was strong and it, and it felt like predominantly there was almost starting to be this winner in the marketplace, but largely the market cap between the two is equalizing, if not closing thinner and thinner, right? So I think that's an interesting aspect that there's going to be a lot of things that at face value of customer sentiment or you know, whatever it might be that right at the moment, it may be localized to the situation you're in, or even when you're looking at the effects of that phenomenon, it might be difficult to be able to say what the cost would be but it's important to know that there are always downstream effects and costs that come from these types of things that affect the important, but not usually not easy to measure, I guess is, is a good way to say that. But. And I hate to use the cliche Apple example, but <laughs> I think about when the rumors were all going around that Apple was releasing destructive code in their iOS updates that would make older phones go slower so that it would push those users to purchase newer iPhones. And I would love to know the insides in terms of like what kind of research went on behind that. But when they made a strong stance, I believe it was the end of last year in terms of, no, we don't do this. And in fact, we're going to extend our support. I think they dropped things in terms of replacing batteries in older phones. They dropped the price significantly on that through the end of this year. And then I believe in the Worldwide Developer Conference, they announced that iOS 12 would actually be optimized for those older iOS, I think even back to the iPhone 5S. And so even though that's something, maybe someone did crunch the numbers in terms of what this would mean for them in terms of loyalty and purchases through iTunes Store, but for these older phones, these people have already purchased a phone, you know, what advantage do they have from a revenue perspective to keep people on older phones other than just that brand loyalty, you know, and you could probably say the same thing of hopefully there's going to be a reaction to the new MacBook Pro issues with their keyboards, that there'll be a similar reaction. But a lot of things along the same lines, it's not necessarily just the numbers, but it's also that loyalty and that intangible cost that comes with that. Yeah, <laughs> I was actually victim to the keyboard thing. <laughs> so you had to send your laptop yeah. in and get another one, get a loaner and switch it out later? Three, three different times, yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, I mean, the, the keyboards are just junk. Fingers crossed for this um, new sealed off, you know, butterfly clip. But the point being is that this year, before that was announced, this year is the first time 
that I've started looking for a different machine. So I was looking at, you know, the new Chromebook. I was looking at a Surface book, all these different types of machines. Because for the first time, I just felt like Apple totally and completely missed the mark from a delightfulness standpoint. So in the moment, you know, right when I first got it, that probably wasn't really apparent. And it probably wasn't really apparent to Apple either because people were just coming in and having their MacBooks replaced instead of returned. But downstream, when people actually start buying different machines and miss a cycle of a you know, particular version of a MacBook, that's, that's a lot of revenue. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with MacBook numbers here over the next few years, especially if there's still issues. But yeah, great point. I think we've definitely hit that at home pretty well. <laughs> um, Costs are important. <laughs> yes. Well said. So I, I think the, the, the next one that we talked about in the field guide here that um, I think is, is an interesting one to think about, especially in relation of other phenomenon and then primarily features that are going to be built or that could be built is impediments. So what things are currently being impeded or blocked by the fact that you don't have a fuller understanding of what's actually happening with a particular phenomenon? If you could build a little bit deeper understanding of what's happening with it, with the customer and why they're experiencing something or what, why this phenomenon is occurring, what type of efforts would actually be sequenced and enabled just from learning that? I, I think that this, this particular variable has probably some of the highest ability to impact the business as a whole than probably any of the other ones that we'll talk about today. But I've seen this happen quite a bit where there are probably, let's say, a little bit larger company. Let's say there's about two dozen to three dozen different product teams all building on different versions or different products altogether. And three or four of them are all wondering and curious and needing information about a particular phenomenon. And that once they understand that, it actually opens up a world of value for them to create on each of their respective teams. So if you were looking at that, again, myopically at what team is going to actually go out and discover that, you'd be thinking about, well, team one over here is actually going to go out and do the research, and these are the doors that will open up for them. Without realizing that there's three other teams that can be impacted and enabled from this effort. So it's, it's really thought about that way. I think it's super important for organizations to be able to think through this variable in a, a pretty rigorous way. And that shows the importance of having cross-functional integration when it comes to these teams to be able to see the impact and be empathetic to what that could mean for not only other product teams, but for marketing, for sales, for others in the organization. And one thing I think about as a quick example is I think about a lot of business-to-business -business companies that make the transition from being a tool to a full-on enterprise solution. And there's usually this uncomfortable period during the transition because before the idea was we are building a tool to help people with a certain problem or try to accomplish a certain outcome. But with any tool, you need some sort of craftsman behind the tool using it, some sort of practitioner on the other end, whether you're making accounting software, HR software, whatever it is that you're trying to 
create this better tool for them to go and implement in their work. And when it comes time, if you're going that route and see the need to go into more of an enterprise solution play, like there's just a lot of questions to be answered that affect the entire business as a whole, right? When you make that switch from just building a tool or product to going to, we're going to be a solution-based business where we're going to include professional services, implementation, account management, you know, it's totally changed how we're going to think about product and marketing and how we acquire and keep customers and deliver value to them. And that's one of the phenomena that, that begins with where if you do understand that that's even a place that your company could go or that the market even needs, like that opens up so many other opportunities for so many other teams in your company and how they can move forward. And really, if you don't have that kind of research and you're trying to make that shift, you're just making a whole lot of guesses. And, and we've mentioned this before in all the other podcasts and field guides, but I think that's a massive impediment as well is that if you don't have these phenomena prioritized and doing this research and thinking about how this can affect other teams and departments, then everyone else is just guessing. They're just running without it. And so this is a huge variable to think about when prioritizing that phenomenon. Yeah, I want to make sure, I want to dive into that a little bit deeper, Trey, just to make sure I understand what you're saying too. So if, if I if I play that back for you, it's it's this sense that as any you know product offering that wants to climb up market towards more of an enterprise you know level offering, as they climb up market, things like revenue expansion become more important, and you know renewals become more important. Any way to be able to differentiate yourself in a more you know increasingly commoditized market that's a little bit more down down market is that as that happens more your ability to differentiate yourself all these things are becoming more and more important so you have all these different teams that are starting to be able to evolve and be you know created to be able to help enable those efforts and if i'm understanding you correctly it's the fact that you have all these interdependent teams that are now working together in concert and that they're they're oftentimes phenomena that would enable all of them together. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying there? Yes. Yeah. Thanks for cleaning it up. That's, that sounds much better. No, it's good. I, I want to make sure I understand. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I agree quite a bit there. I, I think there's an interesting aspect of, I was just thinking through as a product practitioner, if I understand a particular phenomenon really well, and let's say that that opens up the doors to a new value proposition you think about just all of the downstream effects to your point that you're making here, Trey, that that actually has. So, okay, we, we find a phenomenon which observed. Uh, it's something that has to do with an offering that we don't currently have inside of our business. Our, our, our team goes out and starts to investigate this phenomenon. We recognize, hey, there's an entire product offering here that we don't currently offer that we could offer that would provide a lot of value to our customers and to our business. It's right in our wheelhouse. You understand it so well that you understand exactly what the, you know, the value proposition should be, uh, what characteristics it should have, et cetera. You understand the customer pain points. You can empathize with them. You go through the process of actually building that out. Think about the downstream effects. After. That's, I think that's where most product practitioners stop, but you have to think about, if you understand the phenomenon, what, what are the downstream effects that are going to happen because of that? Well, now, as you start working with, let's say, product marketing, to be able to understand what should the pricing and packaging, if that's their role in your organization, what should the messaging be, uh, what should our launch plan be? The things that you discovered 
in that effort are now going to be fueling what is happening in those meetings and in those activities for product marketing. Once product marketing is, is kind of passing this off to, let's say, the demand generation team, what should go into a banner ad? What should be the messaging? What copy do we use on the website? How do we describe these feature sets? How do we know that the right cohorts and segments of our market are actually coming to this page and are, we're actually you know, building the correct funnel down to when a salesperson is presenting that to an enterprise customer or you know, a pro-serve team is trying to be able to explain the service they can provide. There are so many downstream effects that happen that create real value for a business that make this entire process much easier. I think the alternative is that you have this over the wall handoff where each person is like, well, here's what we have. Let's conjecture and be subjectively, you know, figuring out what the messaging should be. Okay. Well, what should the copy be? Which I've experienced by the way. And it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Or you have people who are like, well, back my other company, this is how we did yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I agree completely. I think there are some huge valuable effects that can happen inside of an organization when you start thinking about what does this enable? What does this open up? What impediments can be removed if we go out and learn about this? Great point on the, the upstream fight there as well. The next one that we have here in the field guide is reach. This really has to do with a couple different things. It could be the reach to your customers. So how many customers does this affect? How many other initiatives does this affect? Does this affect part of our business model? Does it affect revenue? Does it affect our ability to um, actually retain customers? So I, I think you're just you're really starting to think about thinking about this as a node. What does this have its fingers on? What is this touching, and how many things can it actually affect? Something comes to mind when I think about that is if, if you're making the move to like internationalization, right? That's one of those things that can touch entire organization in terms of current customer base, future customer base, initiatives, goals, what other teams are doing, current features in the product. Those are definitely things that you want to think about, like you said, and have those dialogues with those other teams to see, and just to have that context of where is this sitting in terms of where we're going. And this is where I think it comes a little more to as well, where this is very much an art in terms of, you can't really make a hard and fast rule in terms of how to prioritize. You really just have to, try to gather all the data you have about your business and your current situation to understand the reach that understanding the causality of phenomenon would have for everyone that you're touching. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, I think it, this one just dovetails pretty nicely, you know, into the next one, which is, is really your time and ability to respond. Let's say you find something that has a massive, you know, impact on customer value. And it's, it's touching a lot of different efforts. But if you can honestly look at that phenomenon and say to yourself, we just can't react to this in a timely manner, it's, it's okay to hold off for a little bit. If, if you've gone through the process and you can, as a good steward, say that it's it's not the right thing to do right now because our ability to respond and actually do something about this is not in a good place, then it's okay. And I think that there's a lot of, again, you know, our consulting friends and our, our business management friends would probably say, 
that that's more of a resource allocation discussion. And yeah, you could you could reorder all the resources in the business to be able to go attack this. But there's also something to be said about the fact that you could be working on a lot of other things that might be slightly less valuable, but are more easily you can respond to them easier. You can you can actually respond to three or four of these different phenomenon that are on your list here a lot easier than you could this one. Um, and then on the flip side, I, I think there are certainly opportunities for when something is just so damn important that you need to clear the path and actually make, you know, make the effort uh, the highest priority for the company. But I, I think it's important to be able to look at what your current capabilities are and ask yourself, can we respond to this in a timely manner? You know, to go learn about this right now, what would we even be able to do with this information? Yeah, one thing I think about this, and we talked a little bit before jumping on about like your positioning, where you're at right now as a company and who you're actually trying to serve. So one example I think of is if you were, for example, a cloud-based CRM tool for, you know, small to medium-sized businesses, and you see the phenomenon of you're losing business to say Salesforce, and you think back to yourself like, well, are we even really trying to compete with them? You know, are we trying to be a tool for smaller companies or are we trying to be this enterprise tool? And to your point, if you're not trying to be that enterprise tool, then it's one of those things where it's like, you know, even if we dive into that, you know, what, what can we really do to tackle that right now? If, if the answer comes back that the reason why customers are going to Salesforce is because they are a much more enterprise solution and they have professional services and a marketplace, then if you're just getting started in the SMB space, jumping into a marketplace may not be the thing you can respond to the quickest. However, once again, if that's where you're going, right, if you're aiming for the high stars and feel like that there's space in that enterprise realm that you want to go after, then maybe it is where you dive into that and clear the path and allocate the resources there. But it really comes down to understanding once again, where you're at and where you're wanting to go in terms of a company and what your response time would look like given your resources. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's an excellent point, Trey, that business modeling is probably a better representation of ability to respond and is probably most prevalent when this variable is, is spoken about. So, you know, if I could go back in time, I should just cut all this out, huh? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, if I could, <laughs> we can, yeah, man, we can cut yeah. it all out. <laughs> so if I could go back in time, then I would probably, you know, I would change my argument to be yours. It's the fact that there is this this aspect of, this is our current business model. This is our current path to, you know, uh, let's say growth, uh, cash flow positive, whatever the current goal is of the company. But based upon the current business model, is this right for us? Does this does this support and improve our ability to, you know, to be able to capitalize on our market? So I think that's great. It's a great point. The thing that we've talked about here is we've talked about this process of you've actually started capturing phenomenon. You've probably even started to get help from other organizations to be able to get this funnel of information to the people that are actually going to be creating value. They now have this really awesome problem. Of, I have a lot of things I need to go out and learn. Here are some variables I'm going to count for uh, how I can actually go out and learn about this. But the thing that we haven't really talked about, I think, as much I think it's been insinuated in some of our conversations here is who, who should actually be doing this? Who's the, the core set of practitioners that should actually be prioritizing these phenomena? 
in terms of who should be taking this on, you usually have, even if you're a smaller organization, you'll have probably a few different teams focused on different objectives or focuses within your product and your organization. And the initial ownership or responsibility of narrowing down and prioritizing this phenomenon would be on those smaller teams. Now, based on what we've talked about before in the previous episodes and also in the field guides, we're kind of walking through this process of, you know, the need for theory building. And then last week we talked about actually being able to capture and canonize that. Then this next part is once again, just being able to, as a team, take all that's been coming in and being able to decide and prioritize which ones are important. But Nate, I guess question for you is how then, if you are smaller teams within an organization, but have like a much larger overarching product goal or vision, and you're working on a larger project organization, what does that abstraction look like for those smaller teams? Yeah, I think uh, if we look at, just to, to your point, to reinforce your point really quick of why the primary prioritization is happening at the team level, if you're a really strong cross-functional team, you probably have some sort of industrial or product designer, UX designer, you know, whatever the role uh, that fits your organization. You probably have a product manager. You probably have, you know, a squad of engineers that are all working cross-functionally. You might even have some other supporting functions that are working cross-functionally with those roles. But the reason that the prioritization lives with them is because they should be primarily the ones responsible for managing, analyzing, and improving the life cycle of engagement and adoption um, of whatever value prop you're looking at. Mostly that's when I think, you know, we talked about this last week, that most of the phenomena in my career that I've seen has actually come about in those types of activities. Uh, I'm looking at a feature I just shipped. How is the market responding to this? I see this thing happening. I'm going to go learn more about it and then respond with an iterative hype, you know, hypothesis, uh, iterative set of hypotheses. The managed life cycle is happening there is a primary reason why they're the, the ones that should be prioritizing it, right? They're closest to the context. Yeah. They're closest to the information. Why in the world would they not be the ones doing that? But to your, the, the question that you're asking is there's probably some more general things that might abstract away from an individual team and who should actually be owning those. Is there a syndication meeting once a week where everybody's getting together and talking about that? Like what, what's the actual process that goes into that? I do think that initially that sits on the shoulders of a product leader of some kind. Uh, so that could be, you know, your header product, it could be, you know, some management layer, whatever it is. But one of them should probably be championing the prioritization of a more general phenomenon at first. You know, maybe pulling in a tiger team to be able to help understand what's happening here. Once that's understood, if there's a clear delineation of what team should be owning that, you know, having the responsibility go to that team. The core and most ubiquitous amount of phenomenon that are going to be actually be observed are probably going to happen at the team level anyways. But in the event that this is happening where you have these, you know, a little bit higher level abstractions, I think it's good for a product leader to own and champion initially. And even if it's a, in somewhat of an ephemeral way. And I would say too, hopefully there's like a larger theory already in place. You know, hopefully the existence of your company or organization is based on a theory that's being delivered already and you're already acting on. 
And that can probably act in terms of a little bit of a guide there as well, in terms of the phenomenon you're digging into and what would be moved up a layer if it needed to be. But hopefully, like once you said, like, since those teams are closer to what they're seeing, closer to what's being out there, it makes a lot more sense that they're going to have more context on how that's going to be impacted and be able to prioritize phenomena as it's coming in from all different sources. But since they're right there at the front lines, I think they'll have the best know-how and resources to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. I think that that sums it up for, you know, what we discussed in the field guide this week around prioritizing phenomena and this next field guide that we're going to be diving into and, you know, corresponding craft notes podcast will be around actually scoping and framing the observation activity around a phenomenon. So we'll be discussing that next time. Uh, again, I uh, would love any feedback that you have. We want to hear your experiences with implementing, you know, these, these methodologies into your, into your organization. If you're using anchor, you know, send us in a message. I'd love to be able to chat with you about uh, what you're seeing and hearing and, and get some feedback on that on the podcast in general. And if you enjoy crafting thoughtful and provoking <laughs> emails, Drop us a line at craftnotes at motifresearch.com. All right. Well, thanks, Trey. We'll talk to you later, man. Thanks, Nate. See you, man.